Hi, everybody. This is Tony Khan, the producer and director of Morning Stories from WGBH in Boston. Today, we're coming to you from our infamous Studio P for parking lot right across the street from our main studios. We're bringing you part two of our coverage of the events of September the 11th, 2001. Last week, if you recall, we heard from a woman named Laura Brody what that day was like for her and how it changed her life. Today we'd like to tell you a story told in many voices, recorded just a few days after that event in New York City itself. At the time I was working for a program called The Savvy Traveler, a public radio program. They asked me to go to the city a few days after September the 11th and just look around and bring back whatever impressions I could record. So I called up my friend Mark Rashow, who lives in Brooklyn, asked him if I could go see Ground Zero with him and spend the day hearing the stories people that day wanted to tell us. A visit to the village of New York City, recorded just a few days after the events of September the 11th, 2001. We got up at 7 and, armed with day passes, rode the F train to Manhattan, the A train to the site of the attack for a brief look, the shuttle to Times Square, and a crosstown bus to the 38th Street Pier in time to catch the 11 o'clock Circle Line tour. Back in business and offering its newly popular two-hour tour of southern Manhattan three times a day. Over the years, a microphone has been my way of getting close to strangers fast. But today, just about everybody on board seemed eager to talk without prompting about where they'd been these past two weeks and what had brought them here. I got an assignment to do a report on 30-minute documentary. Vasco Dones is a documentary film director from Switzerland. I was talking to a person yesterday who told me that she thought that the American flag was not the right symbol for this moment because there were 62 different nationalities represented uh, among the people unaccounted for. Uh, I don't know, maybe the globe, the planet Earth would be at best a better picture. I have a daughter, a 10-year-old daughter, uh, and we've been here together in New York City this year in July and three years ago. And we had taken pictures of my wife and my daughter standing uh, uh, in front of the World Trade Center. Really the tallest building in Midtown, that tall, dark, sleek glass building right behind the UN, that's developer Donald Trump's latest project. It's called the Trump World Tower. And that building On the other side of the boat, I heard young voices speaking in Italian, a school group of some kind. Like teenagers everywhere, they sought their own company in groups of five or six. Like teenagers, they also looked periodically and gratefully toward two chaperones, a handsome middle-aged American man and a younger animated woman from Italy. Uh, my name is Doug Sassi. I'm from Severn School. Severn School has had an Italian exchange since 1987. Uh, what we do is go there in February, and each of my students lives with a host family and goes to their school. And of course, they, we take side trips to Florence, Rome, and Venice, and other places. Uh, then they come here in September and again live with host families, go to school, and I take them on side trips to Baltimore, Washington, and of course, we come to, to New York. This year they landed on September 10th. Nice to meet you. We couldn't believe it. It seemed one of those bad disaster movies, and I still can't believe it. You know, I keep shivering when I watch uh, the play this time. I mean, at first the kids they didn't even imagine that so many people 
were inside the buildings. We saw in the street the photographs of the people, of the missing people with their age, name, uh, and uh, these kind of things. And the kids read, you know, all the the lines, and they were very surprised because when you see that guy, his face, his name, his age, that he was married, he had children, things like this, you know, it's much different, you know. And now the kids are realizing everything. The parents were really worried. They wanted us back on the first available flight, you know. The Circle Line tour guide, Chris Mason, a native New Yorker, was taking a break at the midpoint of the trip and had a few minutes to talk before the ship completed the turn that brought Manhattan to our port side and pointed us back to the pier. I would imagine you were back on duty as soon as you reopened, right? Yeah, I was back on duty, um, but I mean, yeah, management came down and said, uh, stay away from the morbid side of the story. Don't talk about uh, so much devastation. Try to, you know, put a as positive a spin as you, you can on it. What was that first day like for you? I've been doing the show for 15 years, you know, and first time I saw it, it was just like devastating. I was like tearing up every two minutes. I could hardly do the trip, and I still do it as uh, sometimes when I see the, you know, that skyline. For me, it was just a different cruise because my cruise is usually lighthearted. A lot of silly, stupid jokes, which I, I think I tossed out a couple earlier, which I might throw a few more in. What's a joke you think you'll probably be able to get away with today? Well, I mentioned uh, if you park your car illegally, uh, they bring it to this pier. And if you don't pay your fine, they push your car into the river, which, of course, they don't do. But people seem to get a kick out of that one. When Bush used to fly into town, you know, I'd throw a crack about his daughter's you know, looking for fake ID, that kind of stuff. That's out of my uh, resume for a while, probably forever. How is the city surviving? Where were you? How are New Yorkers handling it? Um, those are the basic standard questions. And um, what do you think is behind those questions? That's a good question. Um, I think maybe they want to know if the city is going to rebound from this. What do you think? As we were leaving the boat, I ran into a couples therapist named Antra Borofsky from near my own home. After two weeks of trying to get to the city, she'd found enough time free from work and family to drive in that day. Her job, she said, was helping people learn to listen more compassionately. She realized the events of September the 11th that had made everyone that day into a New Yorker was, if not the single greatest outpouring of compassion in American history, and the greatest she was ever likely to see. I mean, I feel like this is an, an extraordinary moment in time where everyone is opening to what is most important in their lives. I mean, everyone is, is reaching for the people that they love. I'm hoping people are forgiving each other. It, it's so significant for our world that I felt like I really needed to learn everything that I could um, and how to help. As we headed back to the pier, I spent the last few minutes sitting with Mark. I don't think we understand what people's lives are in, in Palestine. I don't think we understand what people's lives are in Egypt and Afghanistan. I think unless we ha have some compassion for how we all live on this planet and understand that we all want our families to survive, to eat, to be healthy, and unless we're all somehow getting that, that these things will continue to occur. This is uh, certainly the biggest lesson we've ever seen in our history, I think, certainly on our own territory. And I think when we hear the expression collateral damage, it'll never be the same again.
makes me think of that cover of the New Yorker that used to be the New Yorker's view of the rest of the world. You know, it would oh, have to be uh, seriously edited now, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Oh, my God. Oh my Early God. that morning, as Mark and I had stood looking at the debris field of the trade towers, we both talked about our reluctance to be there. I think part of it, you know, you feel that there's a need that you have to come down and see this so you can tell other people what it's like, what you've seen. But there's part of you that doesn't want to see it at all. It doesn't want another one of these images to crowd your memory. You go to sleep at night, close your eyes, this is what you picture. So many, too many pictures, really. I'd watched the towers burn and fall on television far too many times to make sense of what I was seeing face to face. The one unmediated view that Mark had had of the violence of September the 11th had been enough. He'd walked into the street near his home in Brooklyn and looked up. There were the trade towers, impossibly burning and heaving black smoke, totally silent in a clear blue sky. All he could think of was the people surely dying at that moment so helplessly far away. Looking that morning at the 12-story pile of what had once been 220 separate floors, my impression was that it looked like every unearthly thing it had been called. A huge amorphous cancer cell picked at by giant cranes. A black hole that had turned everything within it featureless and flat and from which nothing would ever emerge. In its effect on passers-by, each of them rendered solemn and silent, it was clearly one thing only, the planet's biggest and freshest mass tomb. Now at the pier looking south, I did what I'd seen everyone do that morning. I looked at where the towers had once stood, first down at the ground, and then up. You could still see the towers there, of course, no longer in space, but in time, marking the divide between a before and an after for New York, America, and the planet. The before is a lot easier to see. The after is still shaping up. Beyond the towers, far more clearly than most Americans have ever seen it, and far closer, was the rest of the world. I want to thank you for taking, coming out and taking this trip today um, and enjoy your stay here in New York City and as I said, take advantage of all there is to do and there is still a lot to do. Good luck and uh, have a good day. That was today's Morning Story, part two of our coverage of September the 11th, 2001, a visit to the village of New York City. I'm here with uh, Gary Mott. Not only is this the anniversary of what happened to New York, it's going to be the anniversary of what also happened to New Orleans. Thinking about how I was going to speak to my children about mm. this, just why, the why of it all. I just told them, you know, there's a lot of things in life that we can't understand. Your kids and my kid are going to be growing up in a world where... They're going to have a lot more information, I hope, than, than we ever did, and a lot more uh, the sounds of individual voices responding to catastrophes and telling their story than we ever heard. A wonderful example I just heard today about this. guy was telling me that he saw on the web a piece of footage, a home video that was shot uh, by some guy of a cop who was stopping a looter in New Orleans. The looter was holding up a piece of clothing, and the cop came on this person and looked at that person, and he said, you know, I don't think that shirt's your color. 
And the guy looked right back at the cop, put down the shirt, and walked away. That story lingers in the middle of a crisis. A million things are happening that are very human, and how we understand them and what ideas they give us may have an awful lot to do with what the outcome is going to be, good or bad. It's a new media world that we live in. And it also means that nobody owns the story, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, heck, if this technology is going to give us a chance to hear uh, all of those different points of view that go together to making up the world we live in, then probably the better. Meanwhile, we'd like to express our gratitude to Ipswich, our sponsor, a leader in file transfer software. You can get to their website at ipswich.com. That's I-P-S-W-I-T-C-H. And as we always say, please go to the WGBH Morning Stories website at wgbh.org slash morningstories and send us an email. Let us know what you think at morningstories at wgbh.org. See you next week.